Thank you for uh, having me again. It's good to be back. Uh, we've been praying for Blake and his recovery, so it's good to hear that uh, he's doing well. He's on the mend. He's a real blessing to the church in Maine. So, um, we're going to be in John seven thirty-seven to thirty-nine. Uh, John seven thirty-seven to thirty-nine. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink." Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your work in calling us to worship and receive your grace. May your word change our hearts and minds. And so we may think, feel, and act more according to your pattern and will. Anoint our ears to hear, my tongue to speak, only truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. So there are distinct and clear calls from the Lord to come to him. We often say that the only safety from God and his justice, his wrath, is in God himself. So we find safety from God in God. This can be too abstract at times. Uh, when we are in need of assurance, when we're dehydrated and weary from sin, temptation and troubles, and work, we need, we need something to grab hold of. Jesus provides the needed grace. Jesus is God in flesh. He's not just an abstract concept or some intellectual truth that we have to ascend to, but God actually became flesh. He became something for us to, to hold to and be part of. He condescended to give us himself. His body. In John 7, he's going to show himself as the source of refreshment and life. So when we are dead and dying and thirsty, we can be revived by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is why we come to the table each week. This is something to hold on to. The Lord gives us his body and blood, the bread and the cup. He nourishes his people. He actually gives us food to eat and drink to refresh us. He gives himself so that we can live. We partake of the body as the body. So not only is it the body and blood, but we are the body that's being knitted together by sharing the common loaf. What we will see in this passage is that Jesus is the source of new life, that he is the headwaters of the world. He's bringing a new Eden. He's revealing himself as the rock at Horeb, and he nourishes the tree in Psalm 1, the righteous man, he is a festal wellspring. He's a feastal wellspring, a wellspring of feasting. To understand the weight of the timing of this passage, we have to understand the Feast of Booths. So this is happening, John 7 is occurring, when Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this speech he's given here happens on the great day of that feast. And so if we turn to Leviticus in 23, verses 33 through 44, so it's Leviticus 23, 33 through 44, if you want to turn there, we're going to get a description of the feast. And so I'll read that to you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths. To the Lord, on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation. For presenting the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot we could go down. There are a lot of rabbit trails we could take with the timing, where it is, the months, the days. But we want to focus on these, the things here that we're going to see in John 7 specifically. So we want to focus on the tabernacle, we want to focus on the feast, and we want to focus on uh, the waters in the tabernacle. We want to be mindful also that the Bible often crafts images rather than giving us a thesis. So most, most of scripture is narrative, historical, poetic. Very little of it, pretty much just the epistles, is giving you some kind of theological dissertation. By and large, scripture, what it does is it gives us images and stories. And that's supposed to imprint things onto our mind that will change us and teach us deeper and truer things. There can be more communicated um, in, in this kind of language. Uh, and I think there's a reason God uses images um, and imagery in scripture. And so we want to see uh, some of these images in, in, the feast of, in the Feast of Tabernacles. How is the Feast of Tabernacles going to change the people of God to love him more and to understand how they're his people more clearly? So what is this image of a feast supposed to teach us? It's going to be helpful to look at other portions of scriptures and how they're going to connect and kind of flesh this out. The first thing we want to notice is that the tabernacle is a dwelling place. It's a sanctuary where God is present. So this feast is about being in the house of God. So each Israelite is going to dwell in booths. They're going to dwell in houses, in dwelling places of the Lord, sanctuaries where God will meet them. The tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting. And so this is a place of fellowship for God and his people. The other thing to note, about the tabernacle is that it's a movable house. So unlike the temple, which was stone and had, uh, it was built in, uh, the tabernacle was built out in the wilderness and was going to be moved around with them. It was a tent that could be pulled up and brought around. It was a tent made of sticks and animal skins. And I might have used this expression last time I was here, or you might have heard from uh, Garrett, my pastor, that the tabernacle is a movable skin tent. And what this should be thinking, making us think of is, where does God's presence dwell now? 
in people, and we're movable skin tents, right? We walk about the earth, we're covered in skin and sticks. That's how we're put together. So the tabernacle should be giving us some kind of image of a movable presence of the Lord. This is going to sound like us housing the Holy Spirit. There's another notable feature of the tabernacle that colors in our passage in John 7. We're going to see in Exodus 40, 7, some architecture about the tabernacle. So how are things set up in the tabernacle? So we have this movable skin tent thing. We have this presence of God dwelling with his people at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we also have uh, the architecture itself. How is the tabernacle set up? And there's just one thing I want to pull out of that for the, that's going to connect to John 7 particularly. In Exodus 40, verse 7, it says, Set the wash basin between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. And so in John 7, Jesus is saying he is going to provide you with living water. He's this wellspring. And in the tabernacle, after the altar and before you enter the tabernacle, there's a wash basin. So in order to enter the tabernacle, after offerings were made, then you had to wash before you entered God's presence. So we have an entrance into God's presence by water. So this is going to sound like baptism to us, that we're cleansed and then we're brought into God's house. We're brought into his people. Baptism is entrance into the church. How we're united to Christ and his body through baptism. So there's some foreshadowing at the Feast of Booths that um, in the somewhere down the road, this water and this entrance into the presence of God is going to mean something for God's people later on. And so we have some foreshadowing happening. And we're also going to be having some callbacks in the Feast of Booths. So if we're standing in Leviticus, we're standing with Israelites post-Egypt, what we're going to be seeing now is forward, we're going to be seeing something about baptism and Jesus as this source of living water. Um, But the Feast of Booths is also going to bring stuff in from our past history as well. So we want to see these callbacks that the Feast of Booths is making. During the Feast of Booths, the people of God are in a sanctuary, and the emphasized plants are all trees. This is what we notice, that they're supposed to gather uh, palm trees and willows and leafy trees and, and bring the fruits in. They're going to eat fruit of the trees and rejoice to the Lord in the midst of trees. So they're in a sanctuary, and they're going to be emphasizing trees uh, and, and the fruit of trees and the boughs of trees. So this paints an image of people gathered around a central source of water, a basin of water, leading into the tabernacle, where trees supply their food. So this is, they're back in the garden. This is Eden. Eden was a sanctuary where the Lord dwelt with his people, and he gave them trees as sustenance and covering. And there was water that flowed out of Eden into the world. And so the Feast of Booths reminds them of where they started, and it project forward into where things are going, right? And so this is why Jesus is making his declaration in John 7 on the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So this, is, this all matters. It's all connected. It's all flowing somewhere. Now we are ready to see how this funnels in to John 7. We want to primarily identify three ways that Jesus is the apex of this historic momentum. First, he is the tabernacle. Second, he is the feast. And third, he is the headwaters or the wellspring. He's the source. As the tabernacle, he's the perfected skin tent. So in a way, we are smaller tabernacles, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We walk about the earth with God's presence in us as as believers. Uh, But in a truer way, Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. 
and this would make sense if we're pairing it with the other metaphors in Scripture about being Christians, is that uh, we are part of the body of Christ. And so if we're part of Christ, and if Christ is the tabernacle, we are smaller tabernacles. But ultimately, and primarily, it's Jesus is the tabernacle. We see this in Hebrews when it's kind of unfolding all of this uh, typology from the Old Covenant, is that the, the truer and better and realer thing is Jesus. He's the substance. And so this is his feast. It's the feast of tabernacles. The feast of, it's the feast of Jesus. It's his feast. He is in Jerusalem. And so this is why we have just one feast now, because all of these feasts in Israel get rolled into the Lord's Supper. So there's, we have density in our, in our ordinances now. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the center of God's people. And he stands to call them to himself as a source of their life and a quenching of their thirst. This is what the tabernacle and temple were made to do in some measure. Both structures were the center of the congregation, not just spiritually, but ritually and physically. There's a real correlation here as to how layout of spaces truly influence how we use the space. So we want to think about rooms in our own houses here. Right? Each room is going to have a different culture based on how it's formed. Jesus, the Lord made matter, and so matter matters. It means something. Forms mean something. And so we, as Christians, we can see now, and we can kind of crack the matrix and understand that the way things are set up in our own homes even are going are gonna to mean something, and they're going to say something about the room and craft the culture of a room. So let's take, for example, living rooms or sitting rooms, whatever you call them, the common space, the common gathering room in our house. If in the common gathering room, if in the central room in our home, there's a large television, that's going to do something to the culture of the room. Now, I'm not saying that television is inherently wicked. Cable is, but TVs <laughs> are not. There's, but what we want to know is what is the use of a TV? What does it do? So if we can know what it does, then we can know how to appropriately use it. But if we just unthinkingly put it in the center of the room, what's it going to do? What does a TV do? It creates image and sound that draw the center of gravity from the room to itself. So it's, it's an attention magnet, right? And, it, and it's designed for this. Screens make you emit uh, these beta waves, and it's, it's a passivity. It creates passivity. And so if we have to know what the, what the technology does, and then we can use it the right way, right? And so then we can, we can know how to set up the room in a way that we control the television, and the television doesn't control us. There are other ways we can go about this. We could set up the room in a way in which um, seating spaces itself, right? So there's a circle of seating, a coffee table in the center. Now what does this do? Now we have furniture that is set up in a different way. What is that doing to the room? It's creating fellowship. People sit at a table. They break bread together. They look. It's one anothering. You're facing each other, right? And so we want to think about this. It's, this isn't just Jesus or the Lord is setting up things in Israel to like make some grand point. This grand point condenses and it gets taken home with us. And we say, okay, we're dwelling places of the Lord. Our house is supposed to be, uh, in a sense, a ministry to the Lord. So how do we design, how do we format our home and what we have so that when people come in, uh, the, the forms themselves draw them to something Christian, something godly? How do we do that? So when God places the tabernacle and the temple 
in the geographic middle of his people, he's saying that the worship of Yahweh, the presence of Yahweh, is the heart of his people. It's the center that holds this all together. And that's going to do something to his people. It's going to form their identity, that the temple is, is the heartbeat of, of Israel. This is why it was, it's so devastating for them when they lose the temple, when they lose the tabernacle, when the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines. It, it's an identity crisis because they've been for so long surrounding the tabernacle, surrounding the presence of God. If you look um, in Exodus where the tribes are arranged, it's of uh, the 12 tribes, there's four uh, cardinal directions. And so there's three tribes on each direction, north, south, east, and west. They literally surround it. They're drawn to it. It's the center of their compass. And this is going to be ingrained in them because the forms matter. So when Jesus stands up on the great day of the feast and says he can give them living water in the middle of Jerusalem on the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he's making a claim to divinity. He's saying, I am the center of your life. I'm where you find water. I'm where you come when you're thirsty and you drink. I'm the temple. That's what he's saying to them. God's proclaiming that he is the center of their lives and beings. He's making a claim that the Pharisees will call blasphemy. It's important that he's saying it on this day, in this place, in this way. There's a way that since Jesus is the tabernacle, he is of necessity the feast and the water basin also. As I said at the beginning, Jesus is the festal wellspring. If we think about what the tabernacle was, this grows clearer. The sacrifices were not just to satisfy sin. There were other offerings um, that were meant to facilitate fellowship, the ascension offering and the peace offering, for example. And particularly, the peace offering was a meal that the people got to eat with the Lord. And so there's a sequence in Leviticus 9 of offerings that eventually bring people at peace with the Lord, and they're able to sit down, and the final offering is the peace offering. And this is a meal that they share. So meat is brought, food is brought for the Lord, and the Lord says, come and sit with me. You're at peace with me. We can eat together. I will feed you. You'll be my people. So it's the peace offering that God invites his forgiven people to sit and eat with him. This is the framework that drives us to the table for the Lord's Supper. This is what he's doing. Jesus makes peace for us with the Lord, and then he says, come and eat. You're forgiven. Come. Come eat. Come receive grace from me. I'll feed you. I'll give you drink. Come to me. We can partake of the elements because we're at peace with God. This is why we end our worship with the table. Because our sins are forgiven at the front end, so we can be nourished by the Lord. You've been asked to prepare yourself for worship at the beginning. There's a prayer of confession before the table. Because it's not the table that's forgiving your sins. Jesus forgave your sins. The table's a solemn celebration. We're remembering his death. And we're rejoicing in the grace that he's giving us. We feast each week as we come to worship. He is the bread, and the progression goes from bread to cup, from feast to drink. That's how he institutes the supper. First he breaks the bread, and when they finish eating, he says, this, he takes the cup. And so Christ's fulfillment as wellspring is now fuller to us. So now we've seen he's the presence, he's the tabernacle, he's the feast, right? And now he's the wellspring. So now, this, now when he's saying, come drink when you're thirsty, and out of your heart will flow living waters. There's so much more now happening when he says that. First, 
we're pulled to the tabernacle and the basin after the altar. We are reminded of baptism, as I said earlier. This is how we're united to Christ. We're identified with him in baptism. So once the perfect sacrifice of Jesus is made, once he's taking care of the altar work, we can be washed clean and brought into God's presence. And then we can be nourished. If we're not washed clean, if we're not at peace with the Lord, his word's going to be sour to us, and it's going to be a word of condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who trust in the Lord. And so we can receive his word. We can receive his body and blood as blessing. It's not a cup of condemnation. It's a cup of blessing. It's a cup of condemnation if you don't discern the body. It's a cup if you take it unworthily. Because you're identifying with Jesus. You're coming bef- when we take the elements in an unworthy manner, what we do is we say, we're, we're taking Jesus onto us and we're saying, look at me, Lord, and view me as you would view Jesus. But if we're not at peace with God, that's not how he's going to see us. And so this is why we come through baptism into the church, into the body, to then, to then eat. Through the water, we're anointed as a royal priesthood that can function as living sacrifices on the new altar that is earth. So we can move about now doing good work, dying to ourselves for the Lord in everyday things. Whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of the Lord. This is what changes when we, when we take from the living water, when we take from the wellspring of Jesus, is that we are cleaned and become living sacrifices that can over and over die and resurrect each day. Not only is his water cleansing, but it quenches our thirst. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. To the woman at the well, he promises her living water. But where does this living water come from? It comes from his side. Paul tells us that Jesus was the rock at Horeb. That Moses struck with his staff and out of the the side of the rock came sweet water to sustain his people. And Paul says that was Jesus. So when Jesus is saying at the temple in Jerusalem, I'm living water. If you're thirsty, drink from me. This is what he's saying. I've, I've been giving you water for thousands of years now. Since you came out of Egypt, I was giving you water. Look to me. I'm giving give you more water, living water. Those that partake from the drink that Jesus offers have rivers flow from them. He puts us into the garden city. So this feast of booths is happening. We're placed into that. So now we're in the garden city, this temple and tabernacle and garden. All, to, all of this convalesces together now. So out of Eden flowed four rivers that went to the four corners of the earth. In the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 22, flows a river of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. From Jesus comes this water, turning his people into fruit-bearing trees in the glorified garden city. And as this living water flows from us, it irrigates the world and gives life and power of Jesus and his gospel. That's what we carry out when we move out into the world. We're bringing this water. He's digging trenches all over the earth for us to flow through and bring people the gospel and the hope and the truth, making more and more streams, more and more branches of the river, bringing new life to the world. Just as the righteous man in Psalm 1 meditates on the law, like what? A tree planted by a river. The man, the tree, the river, the word of God, Jesus. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Jesus is bread and word, bread and water, sweet, glorified words. What is, when he, when he makes the new cup, the cup of the new covenant, wine, wine is essentially glorified water. 
right? It's water that's been subjected to time and wisdom to be made into something else. But it's water. All that wine is is grapes. I mean, what are grapes? They're just containers of, of water, right? It's changed through the vine. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm the water, the living water, and he is glorified, there's something sweeter and wiser and greater and heavier there than just water, simple water. And proceeding from Jesus is the Spirit. This is the outpouring of Jesus' blessing. The Spirit brings these things into the hearts of his people. And proceeding from Jesus is the Spirit, this living water. Just as water proceeds from a wellspring, so the Spirit proceeds from Jesus. When we're hungry, we feast on Jesus, on his word. There are often times that I've heard really um, sustaining and powerful sermons and have been hungry for the table afterwards. There's a real sense in which we're satiated and we're given appetite for the table by the word of God to receive his grace in another way. When we're thirsty, we go to the eternal wellspring where there's more and more of the spirit. When we're weary, we rest in joyous celebration of Christ dwelling within us. We must be prepared to rearrange our furniture so that these patterns can be more readily enacted in our lives. How do we imbue our daily rhythms with Jesus? How do we rhythm ourselves after his rhythms? How do we register our thirst? When we're recognizing that we're thirsty, what, what do we do about it? When we're craving more of Jesus, when we're, when we're low and beaten, how do, we, how do we change this? How do we come to Jesus? We have the table. This is true. What do we do on Tuesday when we have to come to Jesus and there's no communion service? What do we do? How do we quench the thirst? He's given us blessed means to do this. He's given us the body. He's given us brothers and sisters. He's given us prayer. We can gather together, get faces at the table. We can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, uplifting each other, exhorting the brethren. We can be fed by the bread of our Savior. We want to be seeing this in ordinary ways, that what Jesus can do is he can actually change what we would see as ordinary, what we would just see as a Friday night dinner with friends. He can change that as a way to feed us because where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with us. We can come to the living water. The Spirit's been poured out on us. We have living water flowing from us as rivers. The Lord's feast is eternal and his blood is sweet. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.